1: Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Pachacuti Inca Yupanqui. This bloke rose from being the leader of a small city-state in the Peruvian Mountains to becoming a mighty emperor all in one lifetime. Pachacuti seized his moment in history and forged what would go on to become the largest empire in pre-Columbian America, the Inca Empire. And it all started when his home city of Cusco was attacked and his dad, its leader, just abandoned it, abandoned the city and fled. Pachacuta became Cusco's uh, king and then began a swift campaign of expansion after picking up the pieces uh, of, the, of the failed attack on the city. I mean, he picked up more pieces than had been dropped to begin with. He incorporated new realms and regions into his empire by hook or by crook. They say that you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. But let me tell you this, Pachacuti was more than happy to use both. The Inca Empire grew rapidly as he offered surrounding realms the opportunity to join his empire peacefully, which many did. And those who didn't very quickly got a big mouthful of vinegar. They found out that Pachacuti could very much walk the walk as he conquered the pants off of them. But most interesting of all when it comes to the story of Pachacuti, is not how he built this empire. But it's the sort of empire that he built, the type of civilization that Pachacuti forged, a powerful, centralised empire that took care of all of the basic needs of its citizens in a society without money, without any money or currency whatsoever. The Inca never used currency. Pachacuti's centrally planned economy kept millions of people fed and sheltered and educated and healthy. An incredible achievement that stands out in history. No markets, no buying and selling, nothing like that. These people were looked after by their government, as Pashakuti oversaw immense public works projects, built houses and temples, unified the realm with a huge network of roads, and he also built something else. Something I'm sure you've heard of—a a, a wonder of the modern world, an incredible, an incredible undertaking. But we will we will come to that in due course. Now look. I'm seeing this bloke's praises a fair bit, but I'll, I'll tell you, Cutie wasn't a perfect bloke, not by any means. He was ruthless, he was murderous at times, and he wasn't someone that you wanted to be on the wrong side of, certainly. But his achievements are remarkable, especially as, like I said, he built this empire from scratch in a single lifetime, setting it on its path towards greatness. So let's get across his story, talk about the bloke and what he was all about, what he achieved and how he achieved it. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to around the year 1418, to the Kingdom of Cusco. Uh, the Inca Empire, of course, doesn't exist yet, but Cusco will go on to be uh, the imperial capital. But the, at this stage, it's, uh, it's more or less just a city-state. The Kingdom of Cusco had been around since the turn of the 13th century, over, uh, over two centuries before our, uh, our story begins, and uh, it, it still exists today. The city of Cusco can still be found in the mountains of Peru. Uh, but back then, relatively minor kingdom, as I say, quite a small, a smaller city state in the grand scheme of things for the region, not hugely powerful or all that notable. Um, it did have, you know, some influence over the surrounding region, but not much more than that. Although this is about to change, of course. And it started in the year 1418 when Pashakuti was born. Although that wasn't actually his name at birth, uh, he was known initially as Kuzi. Uh, we'll get to the name, or rather, names that he gave himself a bit later on once he's earned them. But for now, he's known as Kuzi. Although, for simplicity's sake, we'll just use the name that he's known known as to history. Anyway, he was born as the son of the ruler or the Sapa Inca of Cusco, whose name was Viracocha Inca. Uh, Inca here means leader. Uh, and Sapa Inca translates to roughly to only leader. Not not in the sense that he's insignificant. Not like, oh, he's only the Inca. Don't worry about him. No. The opposite, in fact. It actually means it's uh, only in the sense that he's the only one. Oh, that's the... Only Inca. There can't be another one. Anyway, Viracocha Inca is the eighth Sapa Inca of Cusco, and Pachacuti is his third son. And we don't know a huge amount about Pachacuti's childhood and upbringing. Although we know that he was a, a bright and intelligent kid. He was well educated. He learned about Cusco's legal system, its history, its language, and reportedly he was he was brave and courageous. Even as a young bloke, he earned the respect of other nobles in Cusco, particularly because his older brothers were apparently a bit useless. Um, in any case, uh, we don't have a super detailed account of what he got up to in his young years, but we do know that in 1438, when Pachacuti is around 20 years old, Cusco came under attack. And this is when Pachacuti really began to make his mark on history. In 1438, Cusco was attacked by some of its neighbours, the Chanka, who had a fearsome reputation as cruel and bloodthirsty warriors. And based on what I read... The Chanka really didn't muck about. Those who they didn't kill on the battlefield were taken prisoner and subjected to horrific torture. The Chanka might flay you or scalp you or perhaps even turn your skull into a drinking vessel, which I've never really understood um, because skulls are, you know, rather obviously full of holes, so they're not exactly appropriate for drinking out of. I mean, look, you know, I get what you're going for. It's more about the vibe of the thing, drinking out of the skulls of your your fallen enemies. Sure, I understand that, but still a very... A very inefficient way to drink. Anyway, for a long time, the Chanka had been going about causing a ruckus, making a nuisance of themselves, if you can call skinning prisoners alive, making a nuisance. Um, and in 1438, as I say, their attention turned to Cusco. Apparently, they gathered 40,000 warriors to attack the city, which seems a little high. Um, and they used their numbers to encircle Cusco. This number may have been inflated later by the Inca to you know, make the victory that they were just about to achieve seem all the more, uh, all the more glorious. But uh, look, obviously it was enough, uh, enough uh, soldiers to, to scare some of the inhabitants of Cusco, including old mate Viracocha Inca, the supposedly fearless leader of Cusco. Because when they attacked, he turned out to be, well, quite the opposite of a fearless leader, a very fearful leader, as it turns out. And he fled the city with his two older sons. So who was there to lead the defence of Cusco? Of course, it was our mate Pachacuti, who rallied the city's people, sent messengers to enemies of the Chanka asking them for aid, and got ready to defend his city and its people. And defend it, he did. Cusco emerged victorious over the Chanka due to the combination of Pachacuti's leadership and the timely arrival of some allies. And also, according to legend, with the help of some rocks that were lying around the city that Pachacuti magically turned into soldiers, that part I wasn't able to fully confirm as being completely true still unsure on that particular matter but in any case he won the battle and he saved Cusco and of course was hailed as a hero the Chanka were defeated they were driven off and Pachacuti as the savior of Cusco then took the place of his father as the ninth Sapa Inca his dad is still alive but unsurprisingly not new, not too many people in Cusco are all that keen on him as their leader as he fled at top speed at the first sign of trouble Uh, And Virakosha had appointed Pashakuti's older brother as his heir. But again, people weren't interested in that either, seeing as the brother had also fled the city with this old man. Now, I wasn't able to find out if Virakosha abdicated officially in favour of Pashakuti or if his son simply just usurped him in the wake of his victory over the Chanka. There, There does seem to have been something of a dispute between... Uh, Pachacuti and his father and his brother over the succession. But ultimately, look, it doesn't matter because in 1438, Pachacuti took his place as the Sapa Inca and took the name by which we know him today. Pachacuti can be translated in a couple of different ways, and all of them are very appropriate. It means earth shaker. And uh, given that this bloke apparently magically caused the rocks of the earth to get up and fight for him, that does seem very suitable. But so is another translation of it, reformer of the world, because let me tell you, Pachacuti had very big ideas for what was coming next for him and his realm. But with his, uh, with his dad and his brother, brothers out of the picture here, with him f- firmly placing his ass onto the, uh, on, onto the throne of Cusco, Pachacuti began to follow the lofty dreams that he had of building a grand empire. And he didn't waste time in pursuing this agenda that he'd set out for himself. And it involved two main aspects. Firstly, at home, he rebuilt the city of Cusco after the attack. He redesigned some of its layout and and makeup. He He sectioned off the city according to social status. He built districts for nobles, for craftspeople, for immigrants, all that sort of stuff. He stratified the city. And he also oversaw the construction or reconstruction of many major public buildings. And, and one of the most notable ones of these was Coricantia, the House of the Sun, which was a mighty temple. Coricantia was one of the most opulent buildings that you can possibly imagine. It was filled with gold and silver, with rich decorations and statues and artifacts and treasures. The place was a symbol of the realm's wealth overflowing with gold. And of course, it's not around today. Coricantia was destroyed. And can you guess how and why it was, as I'm sure you've probably already figured out, when the Spanish arrived? Yes. And you might even actually remember from episode 171, Atahualpa and the Massacre of Cayamaca, get across it, how the Inca had to raise a huge ransom of gold for Atahualpa. And much of that gold was taken from Coricantia. But then the Spanish destroyed it anyway. And build a church on its foundations instead. Parts of Coricancha have survived, amongst particularly in the foundations. You you can still visit what remains of it uh, if you if you ever in Cusco. Anyway, outside of Cusco itself. Pachacuti's ambitions were laid bare when he sought to expand his realm and build an empire. And this was something he started to do straight away. The the Inca Empire's foundation is usually dated back to 1438, showing us just how quickly Pachacuti got on top of things, sent his forces out to conquer the surrounding areas. And while some of this conquest, as I mentioned, was done by force, obviously naturally, the Inca Empire grew enormously purely through diplomacy. Much of the expansion of this empire was bloodless. Pashakuti would send spies off to the areas that he wanted to bring into the empire. These spies would come back with reports as to the area's strengths and weaknesses and advise on how Pashakuti might be able to approach them successfully. And this meant that in many cases... Pashakuti would offer these regions the opportunity to join his empire of their own free will and for their own benefits, and the leaders of these regions would accept. For instance, if there was a region that spies had come back from and said, well, there's a bit of a food shortage or something like that over there, Pashakuti could come, th- come through and say, listen, join the empire, we'll aid you with the, with the surplus food, we'll help you set up farms, we'll do what we need to do to make sure that your people are being looked after. And given that the alternative was generally, you know, military conquest and a, full, a full-scale full invasion, a lot of people, they read the writing on the wall, recognised that it was to their benefit to join the empire, not just because it would actually benefit the lives of their citizens to be part of this growing and burgeoning empire, but also because the alternative wasn't you know, particularly attractive. So a bit of hook and a bit of crook in this situation. And this isn't unlike what happened centuries previous with the Roman Empire the Romans would approach an area with promises of wealth and prosperity and technological advancements, and of course, the Pax Romana, guaranteeing peace. And they would do it with the might of the Roman legions behind them as well. And that was one of the reasons that saw the successful expansion of the Roman Empire, as well as in this situation, the Inca Empire, because Pachacuti essentially put all of these leaders between a rock and a soft place. They could face a full-scale military invasion and all of, the, all of the reprisals that would come with turning down his deal to begin with, or they could choose the soft place, and many leaders did, in joining the empire and sharing in its wealth and its pros- prosperity. There were plenty of reasons for these leaders to join the empire. Pashakuti offered political stability, a well-funded st- uh, central government, and, as I mentioned, the wealth and the prosperity that came with such stability, such such structure and organisation. Pachacuti would also send rich gifts to those he was trying to bring on side gold and fine fabrics and he would promise that there was more where that came from if they signed up and so people did. The Inca Empire grew larger and larger under Pachacuti's leadership and given the peaceful nature of the empire's expansion in most cases, it led to an interesting situation on the social and cultural side of things. Pachacuti definitely gave the people of Cusco a privileged position within the empire. People who spoke uh, Queshua, the, the official language of the empire, they had greater rights and privileges as citizens. They were allowed to hold public office and other stuff like that. But all the same, even with this favoritism, Pachacuti was reasonably culturally tolerant. He didn't stamp out the languages and the cultures of those who were incorporated peacefully into his empire. Generally speaking, he allowed the traditional leaders of a given area to continue governing as his vassal but that's not to say he didn't find ways to ensure their loyalty one of pachacuti's favorite things to do in this regard was to take the children of those in power in these new vassal regions he'd take the, the those the, the people who were governing take their kids back to cusco with him and he did this for a couple of reasons firstly the kids were essentially hostages they ensured the good behavior of his vassals a very very common thing that was done amongst noble and princely houses throughout the world throughout history but secondly It gave Pachacuti an opportunity to uh, educate the next generation of regional leaders in the way that he wanted. And you can be sure that they were all taught about just how great the Inca Empire was and how beneficial it would be to remain part of it once they had grown up and they had inherited their vassal states. So in some way, Pachacuti was very cleverly preparing the next generation of leaders to be sympathetic to the centralised imperial government in Cusco. But thirdly, on a social level, it gave Pachacuti the opportunity to encourage intermarriage between Inca nobility in Cusco and these vassal families, and indeed throughout his entire realm. You had the next generation of leaders all under one roof in Cusco, studying and learning and spending time together. And I mean, you know, they start off as kids, they turn into horny teenagers. Next thing you know, one of your vassal's kids is marrying another vassal's kids, and kid, and all of a sudden, you're encouraging and growing unity, familial ties throughout the empire that you're building and bringing your subjects closer together. And in this way, by more or less politically indoctrinating these future leaders in addition to, you know, encouraging and fostering social, very strong social ties between them, Pashakuti built a strong plan for the future of his empire by ensuring that vassals down the line would be on side with the empire overall. Very Machiavellian, you have to say, but it was a way to peacefully assimilate people into a cohesive and functioning and still very culturally diverse empire without needless bloodshed. We've talked a lot about empire building on this show, and generally speaking, as much as I accept imperialism as a very real part of history it's not something i'm a huge fan of but the way in which pashakuti went about building this empire i mean if you got to build if you have to build an empire if you have to be imperialist certainly you could learn a lesson or two from pashakuti in in the way uh he went about building this realm as peacefully and as bloodlessly as possible although that's not to say that no blood was spilt because Certainly a fair bit of it was when push came to shove. When regions wouldn't capitulate, Pachacuti sent out armies to drag them, kicking and screaming, into the empire. And those who resisted, they were treated without mercy. The leaders were executed and replaced, and their territory was forcibly brought under the control of the Inca Empire. And garrisons of troops loyal to Cusco, loyal to the Inca Empire, they would remain behind to enforce imperial law. And uh, ensure that the empire's new possessions remain so, uh, whether they liked it or not. And look, in this way, you can see that Pashakuti's particular individual brand of imperialism didn't lack the same hard and oppressive edge that we've seen in most historical empires, but at least it wasn't at the forefront of his empire-building strategies. Uh, In later years, Pachacuti's son Tupac, who would go on to succeed his old man after Pachacuti's death, uh, he conquered vast lands to the north of Cusco, as far north as Quito, in modern-day Ecuador. And in fact, Tupac Inca continued his father's conquests and brought the Inca Empire almost all the way to its greatest territorial extent, ruling over a realm that stretched from Quito in the north, all the way down along the coast, to where you find modern-day Santiago in Chile. So through a combination of diplomacy... And military force, Pashakuti forged his empire, and as he did so, he did what he could to ensure that it would stick around after his death. And in seeking long term stability and cohesion, Pashakuti reformed the economy and the politics of his new empire and focused on grand infrastructure and building projects. One of which, as I mentioned before, went on to become world famous, which we'll get to in due course. But first, Let's talk about some of the more overlooked aspects of the legacy of Pachacuti, some of the things that maybe you don't know about the Inca Empire, the empire that he built with his own two hands.
0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Uh, Firstly, and perhaps most interestingly, some of his less- Uh, successful reforms, his political reforms to do with succession. He attempted to solidify the Inca Empire's succession laws. These changes didn't stick. Uh, His son Tupac succeeded without too many problems. But after that, people didn't really heed the laws that Pachacuti had set out, and there were more than a few issues surrounding future successions in the generations that followed. But other political reforms fared much better. Pachacuti set up what was essentially a federal political system that meant the Inca Empire was... Well-placed to last through, I was going to say the centuries, but at least the century, um, because obviously, you know, the Spanish came and threw a bit of a a spanner in the works there. But uh, the Inca Empire at the time, it was known as the Tawantinsuyu, right, which translates as the Realm of the Four Parts. Paschakuti split up his empire into four regions, each of which had a governor. And under these governors, there were smaller regional leaders that reported to them. So it was a tiered, essentially feudal structure. And he made sure that the empire was well populated throughout its entire area um, in, in a move that actually doesn't reflect all that well on him. He forced the migration of poorer classes into areas that needed more people, more workers, what have you. And these displaced people, uh, as you can imagine, didn't end up being treated all that well in the places that they ended up, unfortunately. His economic reforms uh, were very successful and also very interesting to learn about. Because as I, mentioned, as I mentioned in the introduction, the Inca empire didn't have money, no markets, no buying and selling. The Inca economy was centrally planned and it worked extremely well. Taxes weren't paid with coin or currency, but they were instead paid with goods or labor. And this had some very interesting effects on the empire itself, which I'll get to in just a minute. But under this centrally planned economy, each region would manufacture what goods it could, set aside what it needed, and then send the rest to the imperial government. And the imperial government would then assign this surplus, all the surpluses that they received from different regions to other regions that needed the surplus most. So, in effect, everything was free. Free housing, free food, free clothing, free education, free healthcare. The Inca Empire oversaw one of the most successful planned economies in history and took care of all of the basic needs of its citizens without them ever paying a cent. Now, there was some external trade with neighbours. There was a small amount of internal trade. So there was a little bit of commerce going on using the barter system. But there was no money. The Inca economy was based on mutual reciprocity, knowing that if you helped to look after the needs of others, your needs would be looked after when the time came. If you lived in a region that produced a surplus of food, that food would be distributed throughout your region. Then the surplus, whatever wasn't needed, would be sent away to the imperial imperial government, who would make sure it got to the people who did need it. And meanwhile, if your region lacked for something, whether it was clothing or workers or whatever, that would also be provided by the government. An incredible system, and all the more incredible in that it actually functioned. But the strong central government, the core of the Inca Empire, enabled this economic model to flourish, and it helped the empire prosper. I mentioned the the taxation system. I want to come back to this. Uh, paying taxes in goods or, or, or in labor, right? The, the, the taxes that were paid in goods were added to the other government surpluses that were then sent off to wherever needed them the most. But most people didn't pay their taxes with goods. Most people paid their taxes with labor. For a certain period of each year, the men of the Inca Empire were called up to work on imperial projects. They were called up to work on things like the massive road network that was being built across the entire empire. This was something that was critical to the empire's success, um, particularly as the government, which, as I mentioned, was responsible for allocating surplus to areas based on need, uh, had to have a way to get that surplus to where it needed to go uh, in order to do things like, I don't know, bolster a region hit by poor harvests or famine by sending in excess food. But this couldn't be done without a way to get the food there. And that's why this huge system of roads was built largely by the taxed corvée labour of the Inca citizens themselves. And it was used to quickly transport goods across the empire as needed. These roads had storehouses dotted along them, again, built in the same way. And with this incredible piece of governmental infrastructure supported by labour-based tax, the centrally planned economy kept functioning. All of this built on corvée labour levied as a tax on the subjects of the empire. Once again, an incredible system in every sense of the word. To pay your taxes rather than fill out a, a form and send a bunch of money off to the government, you would go and work on building a road or a storehouse or irrigation canals or bridges or tunnels or palaces or fortresses or whatever else was needed at the time. And because of these public works projects, because of the infrastructure that they created, The government was able to continue to govern and ensure that the needs of its people were met, its people were kept housed and clothed and fed, and all of this was done without any money changing hands. A remarkable achievement. But it's made all the more remarkable when I tell you about a couple of other technologies that the Inca were lacking. Not only did the Inca never use money, they also never developed a system of writing, right? And also never used the wheel to aid travel and transportation. They knew what a wheel was. They knew how they functioned. They understood the concept of a wheel. Some of their surviving toys and trinkets show us that. But the Inca never built wagons or carriages or wheelbarrows or hand carts or anything like that. Now, this might have had more to do with the fact that they didn't have access to strong draft animals. Horses weren't found on the American continents before Columbus. Um, and also, much of the Inca Empire was mountainous, so hand carts may not have been all that useful on steep roads. But whatever the case, despite lacking these technologies that I think many of us would have, would have considered foundational to civilization, the Inca Empire flourished all the same. And it was Pachacuti who instituted many of the systems that built the empire into the success that it became. But as we've been talking about some of the, the massive building projects of Pachacuti, I want to move away from the, the roads and the canals and the, and the tunnels and the bridges and talk. I mean, I mentioned before that uh, Pachacuti also built palaces and fortresses, and, and Pachacuti ensured that there were fortresses spread throughout key parts of his empire, ready to defend it if needs be. But the most famous building project that the Inca ever undertook, its most famous legacy even today... This may have been one of those fortresses, or it might have been a palace or a temple precinct or just an imperial retreat for Pachacuti himself. We don't know for sure what it was, but I'm sure you've heard of it, and you might have already guessed what I'm talking about. I'm talking, of course, about Machu Picchu, which which Pachacuti began to build around 1450. Machu Picchu, for those who don't know, is the famous ruin of an old Inca citadel atop a mountain northwest of Cusco. Because the Inca never used writing, we don't have a complete understanding of why Pachacuti built it or what it was for. But over the years, through research, we've taken educated guesses. And leading theories at the moment suggest that it was built as a place for Pachacuti to spend time, although clearly it was also a, a sacred site as well. So it would have had some religious significance in addition to being an imperial retreat. So it was just a, a grand estate, perhaps, with a with a religious or a ceremonial aspect to it that also happened to be very, very well fortified indeed. Construction began, we estimate, around the 1450s, when Pachacuti's reign is well and truly underway, Um, although it was worked on and expanded for decades, well into the reign of Tupac Inca, his successor. And Pachacuti would spend time there with an enormous staff, around 750 people, it's estimated, and this included advisors and courtiers and priests and servants and farmers and workers, all sorts of people, But then at other times during the year when he wasn't in attendance, when the imperial family wasn't there, a much smaller staff was kept there to maintain Machu Picchu, around 100 people. Uh, Although, you know, this was still enough to keep the place maintained and looked after, as I say. And uh, Machu Picchu had two main sections. It had an agricultural section filled with terrace farms, and it had a city section of around 200 buildings. The terrace farms relied on rainfall for irrigation. Uh, helped to feed the people who lived and worked there, although food still had to be brought in because it, the terrace farms weren't able to grow quite enough to feed everyone who lived there. Um, and the buildings in the city section were incredibly diverse. There were small dwellings for lower-class residents all the way up to the big temples and grand houses for the higher-class residents. Um, and in addition to the residential and re- religious buildings, there were also a few military buildings. There were guard houses, there were fortified walls, all, all that sort of thing as well. And its location, interestingly was a very closely guarded military secret at the time that uh, the Pachacuti and Tupac made uh, made use of it. it. It wasn't the sort of place that people used to be able to visit. It wasn't the sort of place that Incan tourists could go to, no. Um, and what's very interesting about the, the secrecy involved in the location of, uh, of Machu Picchu is the Spanish never found it. And this probably has a lot to do with why and how Machu Picchu has survived in the way that it has today. It is still obviously a ruin. It's centuries old, but at least it still exists, broadly speaking, in an unadulterated form because of its secrecy, because of its uh, its remote location in the Peruvian mountains. The Spanish never found it. There are some vague references in various sources to places that might have been Machu Picchu, but on the whole, it's thought that Spanish conquistadors never actually came across it. Um, And the Inca abandoned it around the time that the Spanish arrived. Uh, Again, there's debate as to exactly why they abandoned it. It might have been as simple as it being evacuated uh, as the empire uh, came under threat of conquest by Spain. Um, Or it, it could have been that everyone at Machu Picchu was infected with smallpox by Inca visitors who brought the disease with them after initial contact with the Spanish. Whatever the case, Machu Picchu was abandoned and it fell into ruin and lay there on the side of a mountain for centuries with hardly anyone knowing about it. It certainly didn't have any international fame or renown until around the turn of the 20th century. A German businessman named Augusto Burns may have, uh, may have found and plundered the ruin in 1867, although that remains unclear and unproven. But in 1911, it was brought to international attention when an American explorer, Hiram Bingham, led uh, was led there by a local. And he, of course, as you can no doubt guess, plundered the place as much as he could. He absolutely stripped it. Uh, and the US and Peru were arguing over the artifacts stolen from Machu Picchu for a very long time, all the way through until 2012, when uh, everything was finally, the last of the the last stolen items were finally returned, and they're now on display in Cusco, as is only right and proper. But Machu Picchu is certainly the most famous legacy of of, of not just Pach- Pachacuti, but also the Inca Empire altogether. It still attracts thousands upon thousands of tourists every year, and it is a lasting monument to this once great empire, one of the few given how much of the Inca Empire was destroyed with the arrival of the Spanish. What is so notable about all of the things that I've talked to you about when we're looking at the Inca Empire as a whole is that it. this all took place within a single lifetime. Pachacuti did all of this within his own lifespan. His successes went on to expand the borders of the Inca Empire even further and continued to oversee it grow and prosper and flourish. Uh, but within just a few decades, Pachacuti had gone from ruling a relatively insignificant city-state to an expansive, powerful, and centralized empire. And as I mentioned, the Inca Empire would go on to be the largest empire in pre-Columbian America. It ruled over 12 million people at its peak, almost 3% of the world's entire population at the time. But that, of course, was before the Spanish turned up with dreams of rich conquest alongside deadly disease, both of which combined to ravage the Inca Empire. But that is another story, and you can hear all about it in episode 171, Atahualpa and the Massacre of Cayamaca. Get across it. As for Pachacuti, however, he continued to rule over and expand his empire with his signature combination of diplomacy and conquest. He consolidated his power however he could – um, and look, I haven't really talked about how ruthless he could be when it, when he felt it necessary. I mean, sure, with his military conquests, we've talked about that, but that's pretty standard for anyone building an empire. No, it was in other areas that Pachacuti showed a ruthless and cruelly pragmatic streak. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the religious human sacrifice that was a normal part of Inca culture. No, Pachacuti executed members of his own family, and like a lot of them, to ensure his own planned succession would be a smooth one. He killed two of his brothers, and if you'll believe it, two of his own sons as well, because he favoured Tupac so heavily over them, he didn't want them challenging his favoured heir for his throne once Pashakuti died. And... Some describe Pashakuti as an enlightened leader for the way that he built his governmental system from the ground up and supported it with public works and provided for his people's needs. And certainly all of that is true, but he was still far from perfect. He executed prisoners and captives without mercy. He oversaw mass sacrifices in the name of his gods. He murdered his own kin for the sake of political expediency. And none of this really fits in with the model of an enlightened leader. But all the same, it's impossible to ignore his profound influence as the ruler of what was again the ultimately largest empire in the Americas before the, uh, in pre-Columbian times. A sprawling and prosperous empire that sprang up within a lifetime before spreading even further in the years to come. An empire that united people from all sorts of cultural and linguistic backgrounds. And the fact that Pachacuti did this without the written word, without the wheel, without money. It makes it all the more impressive. Now, there isn't much of the Inca Empire left today. There are around 10 to 11 million people who still speak Quechua, the the language of the empire. They live across Peru and Bolivia and Ecuador and Argentina. Although, I have to say, not all of them are descendants of Inca society. Um, But when it comes to more tangible remnants of the empire, its buildings and its monuments, well... As I've sort of alluded to, the Spanish didn't really see the need to keep these buildings and monuments around and demolished and replaced them. And this is why Machu Picchu is so important. It's so lucky that they never got their hands on this mountainside citadel, so we can still see the glory of the Inca Empire in some form today. Pachacuti died in 1471, and in the tradition of his people, he was mummified before being laid to rest in the mountains above Cusco. Following the orders that he'd given before his death, the Inca Empire observed a mourning period of a year, an entire year, bloody hell. Uh, but this included also a month-long festival celebrating his life. And what a life it was as the creator and the architect of one of history's great empires. Pachacuti's life, his reign, his tremendous achievements, all of these are well worth us remembering today. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Pachacuti and how he forged the Inca Empire. Uh, Quite a, again... Quite a remarkable achievement, and for him to have done all of the things that he did in such a short amount of time, he really does stand out as one of the great leaders uh, in history. But uh, that is that for another week of half-assed history. Uh, Of course, we've got all the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way. So uh, a fond farewell to all the people who just skipped this part of the show. I know you're there. I see you. I see you on the stats. Don't think that you. I, I. I don't. I don't miss anything, mate. I know that you're not. They're not even listening anymore. Just the true fans. Just you. Just just you and me now. Just the just the true fans and me here having a chat about. The bo- normal, boring housekeeping stuff. Thanks for listening to all of this because it doesn't change really every week. HalfHouseHistory.net, contact form. Uh, old episodes. Subscribe Spotify, Spotify, iTunes, merch, Patreon. Um, thank you. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell people about whom you feel largely. And to- I feel like I should maybe mix up the end. It's all kind of done off a script now. Um, I don't know what else. Oh, you know what? I should plug some other podcasts that I do. Have a listen to this. Is another podcast that I do with my friend Dennis um you can find it on spotify and itunes just type in have a listen to this it's like the picture is the the album art i guess is like white letters on a the background kind of looks like a choppy c um it's got nothing to do with history it's just me and him having a chat every week but it's i don't know it's kind of funny and it's fun to make at least so you can have a listen to that if you if you're craving more riley content um but uh yeah no i don't really have oh merch i guess i already i always plug that every week but i'm, I'm quite i'm quite proud of the merch shop I, I do recommend you at least go and have a look at it even if you don't actually go and buy anything you, you will get a chuckle from some of the stuff that i've made there because uh, i don't know it's, it's 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 kind of funny some of it um so go and have a look at that if you want and uh once again i mean i'm not going to skip over this part i do want to thank all the people supporting me on patreon because it's just been it's it's just been incredible to have so many people support for so long oh, oh and in addition the new people who are signing up recently, thank you so much to all the people who are jumping on board and uh, and and supporting the show financially, gaining access to all the behind the scenes stuff, the burps and the farts, and the the frustrated uh, multiple takes I have to do to get this uh, get this stupid podcast done every week in the uncut episodes. So, thank you to all of you, and I do hope that you enjoy the exclusive Patreon only merch that comes your way at no further cost when you're a patron at a higher tier. You don't have to pay extra to get the um, the patron only merch that's sent to you uh, uh not not for free because again you are paying patreon but uh, uh it's not it's not any extra it's not on top of the the pledge you already make so thank you to all the people supporting me there but that's that enough of this i'm going to wrap things up now with a question posed on reddit um this one comes to us from mutant llama mutant underscore llama one who asks it's been hundreds of years why hasn't machu picchu evolved into machu pikachu yet